Happy Sunday. <laughs> this is PFG Live. We are finally live uh, after, uh, what, three minutes of frustration, which I won't bore you with. But um, suffice it to say, we got it to work. <laughs> so thank you, uh, CJ Stevens and DBX and Tuck's Garage for helping out. We really appreciate it. New York Machinist, welcome. We saw you earlier today. New York Machinist reports 50 degrees and cloudy in Corning, New York. CJ Stevens is with us. Welcome, sir. 66 and sunny. A beautiful day in East Tennessee. Nice to see you. Uh, Test Room 2003 is here from Ostkapel. Oh, no. I got Ostkapella. I think I got that. Quite windy, he says. 12 degrees centigrade and 91% relative humidity. Paul Morley is here. Howdy. Nice to see you. And in... Uh, in Wyndham, New Hampshire right now, it's 48 degrees and 52% relative humidity. However, you might want to know that at Manchester Airport, uh, winds are currently 280 at 13 knots, visibility 10 miles, clouds are scattered at 5,500, temperature 11, dew point minus 05, altimeter 2976. And the remarks, there was a peak wind of 310 at 26 knots at 1801 Zulu and a wind shift at 1755. I thought you should know that. I think that's important. Uh, DBX is reporting White Plains. White Plains at 1856 Zulu. Winds are variable at 6 knots. Visibility 10 miles. Clouds are scattered at 5500. Temperature 12. Dew point minus 02. Altimeter 2985. Remarks unimportant. K-Bonk can report it's sunny in Philadelphia. Wasn't that a movie? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Tux Garage reports 43 degrees, partly cloudy, very chilly in the garage in Buffalo, New York. Does every garage there have a buffalo? Okay, we'll find out later. Uh, I see him nodding his head in Discord. <laughs> yes, yes it does. So um, welcome aboard. It's a beautiful day here. It really is. Uh, I was down in the shop. I will admit that I, I did two random live streams on Instagram this morning while I actually got some things done. Uh, and I will be reporting on that in a bit. RJ's Workshop. Welcome aboard. He reports winds are calm at 23 miles an hour in Wyoming. That's a calm Wyoming wind. Absolutely. So... Um, yeah, we uh, we did a bunch of grinding in the last 48 hours. Uh, very happy to have done that because we, we had orders that we have to fill and we got four-inch uh, round carbide stones done um, yesterday. They have to be finished today. We have an experiment running on the grinder right now. I'm kind of keeping an eye on it so I could turn off the mist collector remotely when that's done. And um, we got that weird magnet problem uh, solved for the client so we cranked out another magnet came out beautifully and they're coming out nice and flat and today we'll talk a little bit about that indirectly and uh, a few other things blackout grinding yeah no problem I start uh, I start the process and I walk away and some of my uh, cycle times in grinding, can be over an hour. It could be an hour and 20 minutes, I think, is one of my longer ones. So, you know, remember we, we always talked about process reliability. Once the process is reliable, you can do that and you can, you can trust it. And that is exactly what's been going on. I could walk away from the grinder and everything's fine. So um, today I ended up doing some pre preventative maintenance. I should say annual maintenance on the grinder and the mostly the coolant system. Um, I had to change the filter. So just to review my fil filter system in the grinder, I have the uh, grinder tank that has the continuous band filter. And I've heard that called a 20 micron filter. It might be a little more than that, but I really love it because it it is continuously pulling the stuff out um, and it works great. Right out of the coolant pump, I go into another cartridge filter. Uh, beautiful cartridge filter. See Instagram for photos. 
Uh, it's a big boy. Uh, that is rated at 30 microns. That filter went a year and a half, and I monitor the input pressure and the output pressure. So I'm looking at pressure drop across that filter. Now, as you know, <laughs> pressure drop across a filter is equivalent to the voltage drop across a resistor, if we're doing Ohm's law. And uh, because I use the NOS on my coolant output, if you don't know what a NOS is, go to NOS.gg, N-O-Z.gg. It'll tell you all about it. And that's a constant. So open valve with the NOS, I know my flow rate. And if I start getting a drop across that filter that incre starts increasing, I know I have a clogged filter. That's exactly what happened yesterday. Not a huge, you know, drop, but it was enough to tell me we're clogging. So I went ahead and I changed that out uh, this morning and it went really super well. And I, I put a video up while I was doing it. It was not exactly exciting, but it got done. Um, and we're back in business. Paul Morley reports overcast and 60 degrees Fahrenheit here in Dallas. Garage door open. Just finished Dro Pro Mag Scales, DRO Pro Mag Scales install on my lathe with DIY DRO head unit and touch DRO app on the tablet for the readout. That's awesome. Congratulations. Very productive for you also. So um, after the filter change, I went ahead and I looked at my battery date on the Fanuc control for the grinder. And sure enough, I was overdue. I was over my one year mark. So I did another quick video that only took about six minutes. And I changed out all the batteries on, on the grinder's control. So the grinder is very happy right now. And I checked the oils and there are, all the oils are good. And I did the refractometer on the coolant and the coolant is good. It's a very happy grinder, and it, it earned its keep this year. Um, so that's what's going on in the shop. We're doing an experiment with tuck, which I can't talk about until later, but basically we're grinding another material, which is very interesting. Um, I have not yet gotten to that ruby stone that tuck gave me from his brother. That's coming up. I don't know if we'll get that. We may or may not get that this weekend, tuck. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> It's been, I've been dragging along, but, um, yeah, it's been, a, it's, it's, it's been active down in the, uh, down in the shop. So today's topics, we have a couple of topics to talk about today and, uh, you, you have something to say there, Tuck? No. Okay. <laughs> if you are on our discord server, you are welcome to, uh, answer questions or make requests by video, by, uh, raising your hand in the PFG live stage and being made a speaker. And then we'll bring you in and you can ask whatever you want. That's how we roll here. Uh, I was, I was triggered this week to about this, uh, topic, which we're calling tolerance is money friend. And I was talking to my client who gave me a flatness spec for this very, very strong magnet that we had to grind. Uh, and if you've been following, you know that I designed a, a an aluminum fixture for it with non-magnetic hardware. We did a whole bunch of non-magnetic things to be able to grind this magnet. And, uh, and it worked pretty well. We managed to achieve a flatness, uh, as I'll tell you how we measured it, which was four times better than the requirement. Now this is a little dangerous. <laughs> um, so we, after grinding the magnet, I lapped the magnet with a, with diamond paste on copper lap. Thanks to almost machining who had uh, gifted me this copper lap a while ago. That worked great. And it was enough to start seeing interference fringes with the optical flat. The interference fringes with the optical flat indicated that we achieved a convex surface that was within two bands, which is about uh, 600 nanometers. Well, that was within spec. So I stopped and I reported to the client. So the first, the first thing is I could have not stopped 
I could have lapped that magnet. And believe me, it was, um, it was very tempting to continue to lap that magnet until I had a mirror on it. But the flatness was within the specification. So I stopped. It is very, it costs a lot of money. It costs you a lot of money if you start dialing things into microns that only have to be dialed into a couple of tenths or dialing things into a couple of tenths that really only need to be within a few thousandths. So as an example, I have a, uh, I have a connector here that I, I just purchased a few of these connectors for a project. And my friend WR Rocket will appreciate the fact that I, I purchased a couple of these connectors. These are called, um, these are called uh, DIN uh, 716s which stands for uh, seven millimeters and 16 millimeters. If you'll forgive me for one second, I'm going to go and uh, remotely go into my Lutron app and turn off my mist collector because my, my, uh, there we go. Mist collector's off. Excellent. Okay. So if we look at this drawing and this is pretty standard drawing, it says that for any dimensions, um, between 20 thousandths, and 315 thousandths, which is a fancy way of saying half a millimeter and eight millimeters, the specification is plus or minus seven thousandths of an inch. Now, to me, I hear that, and that sounds like a mile. <laughs> it sounds like a huge uh, window. And similar, and that's the smallest one. Uh, in metric, it's between 0.5 and eight millimeters, plus or minus 0 0.2 millimeters. So if you hit those dimensions, you stop. Your, your, your process is tuned and you can deliver the product. However, there's a tendency amongst perfectionists to want to dial that in even tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh, it does make sense to have a standard in-house that is narrower, than, that is smaller than your uh, tolerance band that you're receiving from your client. That's totally fine. That from a probability point of view, from a bell curve point of view, that makes a lot of sense. But to get crazy about it and spend time that you're not going to get paid for is a bad idea. So we hit, um, we hit half uh, a micron on a roughly four micron spec and we were done. Yeah. Paul Morley says, aim small, miss small. <laughs> so I was really happy to hit that, um, hit those numbers. And, you know, last week or two weeks ago, we were building a trebuchet <laughs> and, you know, the tolerances there were like a quarter of an inch. So, uh, you know, why would you, why would you try to fight that? So, um, yeah, I, I see it. If you're doing, a, if you're doing stuff for yourself and you're trying to make, uh, make a tool or you're, you're, lapping a plate or whatever, but this is a, for an in-house tool, I can absolutely see, uh, trying to make it as good as you can, as, as you can get it. But, uh, when you're, when you're on the clock and you're doing something for a job, once you're inside the band, you're done. Now here's the rest of the story. <laughs> I, I meet with the client and I show them all my data. Actually, I emailed all the data. We set up a, a zoom call. And now the client says, oh, you hit that four times better than we specified. I guess we have to tighten our spec. <laughs> so it's pretty important to push back on that and explain to your client, hey, if you tighten that spec, I got to start tightening my specs. That's going to slow me down slowing me down is going to cost you money. So it's a two-way street. You have to catch yourself over-specifying or over, uh, you know, over-analyzing. And you also have to catch your client doing it and explain to them that it's real money that they're spending when they tighten those, those bands. So uh, I'm curious uh, to hear from you guys if you have stories like that. But uh, never start a project without knowing what the tolerances are 
and what the customer has in mind. Anyway, that project is going super well. Um, it's, it's really fun to do uh, bleeding edge research, which is kind of what we're doing in this particular area. Um, so yeah, tolerances. So, uh, oh, Proteum Machining is in the chat uh in discord welcome aboard sir dbx is there too widget works and tuck so i'm sure proteum has some stories about uh about tolerances and over tolerancing and and all that kind of stuff don't you buddy uh if you don't listen by the way if, if you don't listen to the uh, within tolerance podcast i strongly recommend it that's dylan's podcast he says i'll do whatever they want for enough time and money. <laughs> Absolutely. My concern, my biggest concern is that does the client know how much it's going to cost them when they say, oh yeah, hold five microns. I, you know, just make sure before you start holding five microns that they understand what's going to happen. I just don't like to have to call the, uh, the paramedics when they have a myocardial infarction. That's my concern. <laughs> so, uh, Let's see. So I wanted to I, I want to drop a, a little bit of uh, wisdom here. Uh, last week we talked about all of the tools that are within arm's length of you at the at the grinder, and I have to say that I I didn't do a good job, and I'm sorry because there is a tool. Oh, Proteum says to be more serious, good communication with the customer is vital. That was a very um, diplomatic way of saying what we were. What we were trying to get across. Well done, sir. So, um, so last week I I left a tool out, and I kind of did it intentionally because I want to think about it. But I I've been using a tool at the grinder for the last couple of years that I think is absolutely essential, and we did not talk about it. And I'm going to talk about it now. If you have a manual grinder, um. I started on a Harrig 6, 612. That was my first grinder. That grinder, by the way, is over at my friend uh, Ducky's shop, and he still enjoys it, and it's a great machine. Um, but if you have a manual grinder, this will not apply to you. But if you have a hydraulic table, which is one of the tables that you can, you can set to oscillate on its own without your left arm, developing a repetitive stress injury, which by the way, does happen. Um, this, this is what we're talking about. Now, if you're Adam Demuth, hi, Adam, if you're Adam Demuth and you have a three axis CNC grinder where the table is, is one of the three CNC axes, then this doesn't apply to you. However, <laughs> you guys that have hydraulic tables, like I did on the uh, Brown and Sharp, and I do on the Okamoto, and you look down and there's a, a throttle for the table. This is controlling table speed. Now, John Saunders of Saunders Machine Works and NYC CNC, hi John, um, he just got his new Okamoto, and he remarked that the table speed is set with a potentiometer um, or a valve, I'm not sure what it actually looks like, on the panel. No calibration, no nothing. Why, if you're trying to achieve process reliability and a duplicatable process, would you take one of the very important variables and completely not monitor it? Why would you do that? So let's do a thought experiment. If you're running a grinder and you're doing some precision work and you have this table moving back and forth very fast, okay? Back, 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 back. Does that sound too fast to you? It sounds too fast to me. If you have a process that's running the table very slow, like it takes 20 seconds to get across the table, and then it takes 20 seconds to come back, okay? <laughs> So does that sound too slow to you? It sounds too slow to me. So what's the speed? What's the right speed? And the answer is you don't know. So when I woke up with this epiphany one day, I said, I need to get control of that because I was seeing effects 
from my table speed in a project that I was doing. And I was able to adjust my table speed to make things work, whereas my table speed was not was, was too fast. It had to be slowed down a little bit. And I then realized we have this throttle with no calibration. So I get on I get on the intertubes, I'm sure you've heard of it, and I start looking around and I find this tool which I have used every single grinding session since. And that tool is a surface tachometer. So a surface tachometer is a tool that has a little wheel on top, okay? And in this case, you push a button and it will show you the speed, the surface speed of the surface that you're resting that wheel on. So you could take the surface tack and you can go on top of your, your table and hit the button. And as it is oscillating back and forth, it will measure the speed of the table. Of course, when it gets to the end, it'll probably hiccup. And then once it starts moving back the other way, it'll catch up and it'll give you a number. Now, I don't care what that number is. What I care is that that number is duplicable, that when you go to set up a process, you can set that table speed up to the same table speed every time. If you can't do that, you don't have control of your process. If you don't, if, if you don't know what the grinder, uh, what the coolant you're using is, and what the correct dilution is, you don't have control of your process. If you don't know what temperature your machine is at and you're trying to hold microns, you don't have control of your process. So this is one of those things where for 30 bucks, um, and I haven't done this yet, but I will put a link to, to this on uh, my links page. I have, I have not done it yet. But this is a CyberTech DT Delta Tango 6236 Bravo. And it's inexpensive. It runs on four AA batteries. And I've been using this thing for about two years. And now I can check to make sure my table speed is where I want it to be. Why the manufacturers, especially of my Okamoto CNC grinder, why they don't think it's important is beyond me. Now, here's the dirty little secret. In the Fanuc control, um, I think you can get to a place where it shows you the velocity of the table. It's hard to find, and the, the accuracy and convenience is poor. So that wasn't working for me. This works every time. So if you have a surface grinder with a hydraulic table, I urge you to go spend 30 bucks and measure your table speed. This is not rocket science. The, the inspiration for this, in part, was also those little handheld um, tachometers that you see sometimes that are used for measuring lathe uh, RPMs. New York Machinist says, could one 3D print a dial that is calibrated to the measured speeds or would it vary over time? So uh, the way this instrument works is this is, I even wrote it on there, this wheel happens to be a 30 millimeter wheel, okay? And in order for the number on the front to be a real number that's in a, in a real, uh, in real calibrated units, you have to be using the right, the right attachment which of course it comes with so you don't have to you know but this thing you can pull it off and you can put on other shaped things i forget what it came with but the answer is if the, if you keep the wheel diameter the same the numbers are going to be the same but if you go buy one of these you're done you get everything you see right here widgetworks has uh, has put a picture of it in the discord chat thank you very much that's almost identical I would be shocked if it isn't actually identical. I think this one has another switch on it. No, it's the same. Looks like it's the same. Um, CJ Stevens says, I love my touch DRO install. So there's enough electronics on, on the Okamoto to put a big number on my display that shows me my table speed and why it's not there. I have no idea. So um, another thing I was thinking about doing is making a little project build you know if we take one of our eight our favorite little adafruit feather boards and maybe an optical sensor uh 
or maybe even a wheel, you know, opto uh, optical interrupter with a wheel that, you know, that we could build one. <laughs> this is not rocket science. Another trick you could do if you're good with a stopwatch is you just set up your limits to a measured distance and you take your stopwatch and you measure how long it takes to go a full cycle on the table. Or if you want to be a little more accurate, go five cycles on the table, measure the time and divide by five and know the distance it traversed, et cetera, et cetera. You could get yourself back to table velocity control or at least document your table velocity. Cause I know sometimes if we're doing a job on the grinder, we we're fiddling things until everything's working right and we're done. So if you don't care about reproducing that setup, I guess you don't have to worry about it, but for 30 bucks, put the number in your notebook. Um, oh, a dial for the grinder feed. Right. So I thought about making a, a dial for my throttle to make it reproducible and to first order that'll get you most of the way there. No question about it. Um, so if you put a nice accurate dial on the throttle, uh, that is going to be quite reproducible to some number. And then if you go and you take a measurement with one of these things, you're going to get more accuracy. Does it matter? Depends on your process, but yeah, that's a good idea also. And again, on my Okamoto, <laughs> there ain't nothing, there ain't nothing but a throttle and a little mark that says this way for faster, this way for slower. John Saunders buys a, a brand new Okamoto. There's just a knob it says this way for faster, this way for slower. However, if you spend another 12, 15, 20,000, $30,000, depending on the grinder, and you actually have a ball screw running your table, no problem. You know exactly the speed. However, you don't get that with a hydraulic table. Paul Morley says, assume you'd want the speed that it enters the workpiece to be consistent as well as, uh, consistent as well. So probably worth having the stroke be long enough to ensure it's at full speed by the time it enters the grind. Yes, yes, yes. So you need a little margin so that when the, when the wheel reverses and comes back the other way, it gets back to steady state. So you do need some space. Hey, RP24, welcome aboard, sir. Nice to have you here. Uh, where are you and what's the weather? We, we require that. Uh, you ask, so I'm a newbie here, but is a surface grinder wheel balancer essential? Answer. You'll get different answers from different people. Um, RP24 reports, Florida, hot as hell. Welcome. Um, I think a wheel balancer is absolutely essential. Uh, you know, if you are willing to affect your work a lot, like slowing the table down a lot, you can sort of get away with an unbalanced wheel. Why? When you could literally spend 10 minutes and balance that wheel. Um, now if you go to BAL, no, sorry. Yeah. BAL.GG. <laughs> that's a shortcut to my site on kinetic precision. I make and sell an inexpensive 3d printed, uh, balancing stand that works the shizzle. And I use it all the time. Hey, ugly skull is checking in at 23 degrees science, clear starry skies in the Philippines. Welcome, sir. Nice to see you. Yeah. So, um, when I first started grinding, I also didn't know anything about balancing wheels. Um, so then when I realized that wheel balance was a thing, I made my balancer by making an arbor. Okay. And then by using a pair of, uh, one, two, three blocks, actually four, one, two, three blocks, and then creating a surface that I could balance the wheel on and then leveling that. So after all of that, I started balancing my wheels. Then I, um, I built a balancer and that balancer was made out of aluminum and that went through one, two, three, about three generations of design. I used bearings. I used a big bearing, little bearing. I ended up, um, ditching the bearings for rods. The rods work great. 
And then eventually, and then I was going to make an aluminum, I was going to make it to sell an aluminum balancing stand until one day the epiphany struck and I figured out how to make one that was 3D printed. That works great. And in fact, the first uh, six or eight of units, which uh, uh, went into inventory, um, I actually measured all the critical parameters on it and created data sheets. And I was, it was holding you know, perfectly adequate tolerances. Remember what we said earlier, set your, your acceptable tolerance band. These things were great. So, uh, now that's how I balance my wheels and I do it all the time. I also make balancing rings. So if you're, this is sounds, this sounds like a commercial, but all of these steps are P24 that you're going through. I went through and the solutions that I came up with have become products in my store. So I'm not, um, I'm not just here to hawk products. I'm here to tell you why I did all these things. So I made, uh, I designed a balancing ring, which goes on a Sopco hub, which is the most common hub. And you're able to use set screws to balance and rebalance your wheels. So what happens is as you use the wheel and you wear away the wheel, you, you start wearing away the material that was there that you balanced for. And since all material is inconsistent, the balance is going to change. So being able to rebalance a wheel quickly and inexpensively and easily is I think pretty important to getting good, good work. I posted a picture. I bought a, uh, one of these V blocks that, that, um, of the style that Robin was talking about last week, except not the hardened one, because I happened to find um, a decent one and that was not hardened, but it was in good shape. It was new old stock. So I, I got it in and there was some dings on it. I'm, I've been working on it. And it turns out that as I'm, as I'm stoning this new old stock, you know, on the surfaces that I could stone, because there were some really big dings that I couldn't stone, I actually had to file ultimately. Um, it's uncovering the, the wheel hop of the manufacturer. This happens every time. So once you start using PFG stones, you start seeing wheel hop everywhere. And now you're sensitive to, it's a, it's a never ending cycle. Now you're sensitive to wheel hop. So now you start balancing everything and you know, it takes a while to get to Nirvana, but once you get there, the food's good. So where were we? So that, that's, that's the story. Good questions though. That's why we're here to answer those questions. Um, uh, the balancing rings are, are, are fantastic. Now, can I go on a tangent? Yeah, we have time to go on a tangent. I'm going to go on a little tangent. Um, I'll tell you a story. So, uh, first of all, I have a balancing video coming up. I see, <laughs> I see wheel hop and they don't even know they're hopping. Um, so, I have a balancing video coming together in my head and it's going to be a full length video and we're going to explain how to balance and why balance and all that kind of stuff. But one day, uh, and I, I designed my, my rings. I've sold, can I say hundreds? I think I I've sold hundreds of rings. So one day Robin calls me up. He says, I just want you to know, I think the rings are a waste of time. I'm like why? He says, because I, stroke the side of my wheels and remove a little material. <laughs> yeah. Proteum says, I thought wheel hop was that band you played bass for. You are correct. Um, so basically Robin told me that he has a technique where he removes material from the side of a wheel using a uh, silicon carbide stick and he achieves balance that way. And I'm like, that's super cool. And that's one of the things I want to talk about in this video. Um, you can also achieve balance by, uh, <laughs> if you look around on the internet, you're going to find a video by a reasonably well-respected tool maker and manufacturer of products who I will not name, who advocates using a carbide and uh, a carbide drill to drill holes in your wheel to balance it. Now, both Robin and I had a big laugh over that one because it, it's ridiculous you're weakening the wheel, you're putting in stress risers. It's, it's nuts. Okay. Um, 
So the thing I like about the balancing rings is you can balance the wheel. You can even screw up and you haven't removed any material anywhere. Okay. And it doesn't require great skill. You know, I believe Robin when he tells me that he could, he could balance a wheel by, uh, by gently scraping the sides with a piece of silicon carbide. I believe that, but I don't know if I could teach you how to do it in, in 10 minutes. Um, it's also not reversible. So I want to be able to, you know, reverse that process. So for all those reasons, I like the ring, but I respect the other methods. Oh, you saw that video. Okay. Let's not mention, I don't want to mention who it is because I don't like speaking ill about anybody's stuff, but it, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And that made, when I first saw that, that was on my journey to finding a balanced wheel. And I saw that thing and I just had this visceral reaction. I think that's what directly led to the balancing rings. Anyway, uh, yes, you should balance all the things all the time. Okay. That was a tangent. I wasn't planning on talking about that today, but, um, I, I really do want to get that balancing video together and it's been wonderful in my process. Every time I change a wheel, it gets checked on the balancer. If it needs balancing, I balance it and keep, keep on going. It is not a major event. It's easy. <sighs> I'm feeling better now. You guys in the chat have any questions? Cause we can, uh, we can take them at any time. Okay. So I want to tell a little bit about, um, a discovery we had this past week. So as you know, we've been using these Adafruit feathers and we've been using them. It, it all started with temperature and humidity sensing, which all started because we wanted dry filament and we wanted good 3d prints. However, it got out of control. So now, uh, I've designed, uh, well, I have a piece of software that sits and reads the sensor, it publishes the data to two different places, something called the notify.sh server and something called the Adafruit IO server, which is really super cool. Now the Adafruit IO server is really neat because you could set up a dashboard of all your sensors and it will show you graphs and levels and all sorts of good stuff. So we very successfully playing with that and that stuff is all well-documented. However, I then learned about this thing called web hooks and I was hooked because I'm web. Um, it turns out that, and, and again, if you already know this stuff and you're a software guru, I, I apologize, but this was all new to me and it was pretty spectacular. You could set up a server to send, they call it fire a webhook, to fire a webhook to another server that is set up to do this. And you could send information back and forth between these essentially websites. So it turns out that Adafruit IO is all set to publish things uh, based on criteria. The criteria could be a timer, it could be a limit, it could be... Um, uh, I figured there were three, three of them, but the thing that interests me the most is if this value on this feed coming into Adafruit IO exceeds or gets, goes below a certain value, it will trigger an event. Now that event could be send you a text message, send you an email message. It can also be send a web hook. Well, you guys in discord already know this. Discord channels can have a webhook. So that means the device could send uh, its data to Adafruit IO and Adafruit IO can look at your programming and say, oh, they want me to shoot this information over to the Discord channel and it goes and it works and it's awesome. So I started playing with this and it was fantastic. How, what we're going to do with this yet, I'm not sure. But it, you could have... You know, if you're, especially if you like using Discord, you could have all sorts of data sources, uh, pushing data or just alarms to, um, to Discord and it started working and I was pretty excited and I set up a channel on our Discord server called web hook test. And the problem was it would work five times and then Adafruit said, 
oh yeah, you're, you're not responding. I'm not getting correct responses. I'm turning this off. Like, so I went into Adafruit, turned all my stuff back on and tried it again. I got five publications and then it turned everything off. So this went back and forth a couple of times and I'm like, okay, I'm clearly doing something wrong. So I get on the Adafruit Discord server, right? Which I'm also a member of. And I find a channel for Adafruit.io and I get on that channel and I started a thread and the thread basically said, this is broken. Something's not right. And this, this dev, I didn't figure out, I didn't figure out that they were, that's short for developer. Okay. So the software developer who's working with and for Adafruit comes back to me like immediately and starts asking me questions. And I tell him what's going on. He says, oh, you need to talk to. And this other guy whose name is Lauren, he get he gets on and he says, oh yeah. He says, I know what responses are. Um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the first, the first guy says, oh, why don't you use this website called web webhooktest.com <laughs> and it will tell you what the webhook is doing. So I did that. So now I'm firing my webhooks to this test site. And the test site is giving me information. So now I have information what the test site sees. And then I went over to the, the information that Adafruit IO was giving me about what it was seeing when it was shooting stuff to Discord and Discord was responding and they were different. So now the guy named Lauren says, oh, you mean you're not getting a response 200, you're getting a response 204 from Discord. I said, yes. He says, our software only recognizes response code 200. And I said, well, okay, what do we do about that? And he says the best words you ever want to hear from a developer. He said, hang on. And I'm like, okay. And he comes back minutes later. He says, try it now. And I couldn't believe it. So I went and I tried it. It was perfect. <laughs> so this website, this developer named Lauren, who has the best name ever. He fixed the code on the Adafruit IO site while we were talking. And now it works perfectly. He said, yeah, I set it so that the response codes 200 through 299 are all acceptable. <laughs> and that was it. And we were done. So big shout out uh, to those guys for, uh, to Lauren and to his buddy who I can't remember, but he's, you know, he, he did a few things early on in the process, but they were responsive, like immediately responsive. DBX just posted to the, uh, to our discord chat, the HTTP 204, no content success status response code indicates that a request has succeeded but that the client doesn't need to navigate away from its current page. So yeah. And what is two, while you're at it there, DBX, what does response code 200 mean? Cause that's what they were listening for. Um, anyway, it's good to have software guys as your friend. Oh, here we go. <laughs> DBX has posted the chart, um, of resp of potential responses. So, the Adafruit software was expecting response 200, which means okay. And 204 was coming back from Discord, which said no content. They were both acceptable. Anyway, thank you very much, Adafruit IO. Thank you, Lauren, for being unbelievably responsive and effective because now it's working great. So the way I have it set up is if one of my sensors, I'm using a, a sensor we call KP2, that's living inside the AMS of one of my bamboo printers right now. If that relative humidity exceeds 20%, it will immediately post to the Discord server channel. And that's cool. And then also I have it set up so that two different sensors are checking in at noon every day on our test channel. And it's all working great. So I wanted to report that um, huge success and good people. So I'm, I'm super happy with that. Uh, not sponsored. Uh, Adafruit is, uh, oh, and Adafruit is, is based in a place that is, uh, many people have not heard of. It's called Brooklyn, New York, and they're on Varick street. Now 
Why is that important to me? Because when I got my uh, ham radio license and I had to go to the FCC to take a test, yes, this is what you had to do in the old days, it was on Varick Street. And it turns out it's about two blocks up Varick Street from where Adafruit is right now. So Adafruit is is running their company and building products in Brooklyn, New York, my hometown. And they have some pretty awesome people working with them. So that was a story about webhooks and AIO, which is short for Adafruit IO, and Discord, which are now happily all playing together. So if anybody has any questions, topics, snide remarks, now is the time. Because I think I've covered the, the critical things that you needed to know. I have one more story about software to tell you. So uh, on Sundays, when I get ready for this live, I have to have, I'm looking at it right now, one, two, three, four, five, five different windows open. So on a Windows, on a, on a Windows computer, I have five different windows open and they have to be in exactly the right place for all of this, uh, all this stuff to work. Okay. All these little goodies on the side of the screen. Um, that would take me most of a half an hour to basically recover and reset up all my stuff. So I went on a hunt for a piece of software that would let me automate that. Um, and I'm going to tell you about it after I answer this question. New York Machinist asks, where would one find dial test indicator parts? I may have smashed a Mitutoyo. So um, Long Island Indicator Service is one repair house. The place that I use is... Ah, this is going to drive me crazy. Um, there's another guy I use that I really like. Yeah, Proteum also says Long Island Indicator, but oh, I wish I had his information in front of me. I I, I tell you what, I'll I'll put that information up on uh, on uh, Instagram. <laughs> we'll talk, CJ Stevens. Um, who's the other guy? I'll remember it at the least opportune time but i really like him he's really taken care of me over the years and i want to give him a shout out but i'm having a, a brain cramp right now so uh we'll get you we'll get you that information oscar how are you says how would you balance a grinding wheel on a tool and cutter grinder using the machine to surface grind some small parts so okay on a surface grinder, you usually have a wheel and then you put a hub or an adapter, there's different language for it, on that wheel. That's the metal center part that has a taper in it. And once it's on that wheel, it lives on that wheel until you use that wheel up. I know there are people that keep switching hubs every time they switch wheels or whatever. That's, in my opinion, the wrong way to do it. If you have a system that doesn't use a hub, such as... Um, a bench grinder. A bench grinder is a hubless system. You put a wheel on it. Maybe it has a flimsy plastic bushing and you tighten it up and you go because they don't care about balance. Um, if you have a hub, you take your wheel plus hub, which is going to live together for the life of that wheel, and you move over to your balancing stand. I think what you're implying is that your tool and cutter grinder does not use a hub system. You could Please correct me if I'm wrong. And now you're asking, how do you uh, balance that? I think the answer is you don't because they did not give you a way to balance that. If you try to come up with a way to balance that, you're going to get into technology that I don't think is worth your time. The thing is, is that a tool and cutter grinder is grinding a very small area. Yeah, Oscar says it's hubless. Understood. Um, uh, DBX, thanks for posting that. I don't have, I don't know who those guys are, but he posted another, uh, uh, metrology house, PIR metrology. Um, and CJ Stevens says your tool and cutter grinder has a 0.625 shaft. So <laughs> widget works is starting trouble and saying you just drill holes in it. No. So, uh, because the grinding wheel in a tool and cutter grinder is grinding such a tiny surface, you can have an unbalanced wheel and it's going to cause less of a problem because that tiny, tiny surface is going to see all of the, all of the wheel and you don't have a big surface to, to have wheel hop on. Okay. 
So I think it's a little bit less of a problem. Um, and that's, that's the best I can, I can do for you. You can also convert it to a hub system, but I think you're going to have to end up making your own hubs, which is a whole different thing. But in a surface grinder, you're transferring the wheel plus hub onto a, a balancing uh, stand. You're balancing, and then you're transferring it back to the grinder, which, by the way, also assumes that your motor plus, plus uh, spindle are balanced, and usually they are. That's part of what they do when they, they make those things. So I don't think I have a great answer for you. Uh, make sure you're dressing properly, you know, and, and, uh, good luck. <laughs> so a uh, good question though. And that is a challenge. I have had multiple people come to me and ask me for a solution for bench grinders because they fire up a bench grinder and it wants to walk off the table. It's so unbalanced. RP24, is there an email address you can reach out to me? Yes. Just go to, uh, kineticprecision.com. And the, the easy way is just go to pfg.gg and go back to the homepage. There's a contact page on my website. Okay, just hit me up there. Oscar says, I really need to get a surface grinder then. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> another one. We got another one for the, uh, for the cult, the, the surface grinder cult. Yeah, I suppose you might, you might have to. Um, good. Any other questions, guys? This is going to drive me crazy uh, if I don't if I don't remember um, who my uh, who my uh, repair guy is. Anyway, I will make a nice post uh, about about him when I uh, get downstairs and pull his name up. Okay, well I think we've covered it today. Good job, guys. We had a little technical difficulties getting started. They got fixed. Do not ask me why they got fixed because OBS has a mind of its own. I want to say a big thank you to uh, everybody who showed up, all the guys in Discord, which include Tux Garage, Widgetworks, Casey, welcome sir, DBX, Proteum Machining, and a couple other guys that came and went because they had to go plant their seeds for the winter. And, uh, oh, this is a really good question. Test Room 2003 says, is a hard disk plate a reasonable flatness reference. I had the same question, which is why I have a pile of them downstairs. <laughs> um, they're not strong enough. So they're pretty flat, but uh, they they will bend very easily. So they're flat. They're very flat for how they're intended to be used, which is to sit there spinning at 7,000 RPM and then have something, you know, hovering over it, which is the reed head the read right head, but I, they're pretty flat. So you could use them for some light duty stuff, but keep in mind that your fingers will change the, the, the flatness of that pretty easily. That's a problem, but nice try. I mean, they're, they're pretty mirror like, and, uh, if you're using them to bounce light around, then they're pretty flat, but be careful putting any stresses on it. All right, guys, we did it. With that, I'm going to say thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. We'll see you guys next week at the usual time. And I will be on the Discord server in the um, the after show uh, party channel doing my editing <laughs> right after we're done. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, our handle on YouTube is KPNH for Kinetic Precision New Hampshire. And the channel name is Kinetic Precision NH. We'll see you guys next week. Go have fun in the shop. Get flat and stay flat. We'll see you soon.